Good morning, and happy Lord's Day. It's the Lord's Day where we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And so, um, as we just sang, when we're on our deathbed, when we're in mansions in glory, it's because Jesus rose from the dead that we'll be there. And if he hasn't risen from the dead, then our faith is um, in vain. Well, because man must not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God, please open your Bible to Mark chapter 8. We're going to look at verses 22 of Mark chapter 8 all the way to 33 as we pick up our series on the book of Mark for this week. So hear the word of the Lord from Mark chapter 8 verses 22 to 33. Then they came to Bethsaida. That's Jesus and the disciples. They brought a blind man to him and begged him to touch him. He took the blind man and took the blind man by the hand and brought him out of the village, spitting on his eyes and laying his hands on him. He asked him, do you see anything? He looked up and said, I see people. They look to me like trees walking. Again, Jesus placed his hands on the man's eyes and he saw distinctly. He was cured and could see everything clearly. Then he sent him home, saying, Don't even go into the village. Jesus went out out with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the road, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that I am? They answered him, John the Baptist, others, Elijah, still others, one of the prophets. But you, he asked them again, Who do you say that I am? They answered him, Peter answered him, sorry, Peter answered him, you are the Christ, or you are the Messiah. And he strictly warned them to tell no one about him. Then he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, be killed, and rise after three days. He was openly talking about this. So Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning around and looking at his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, because you're not thinking about God's concerns, but man's. This is the word of the Lord. Our Father in heaven, we praise you for your son, Jesus, who is the Messiah. We praise you that you sent him to earth. We praise you that he was the promised Messiah, that he fulfilled the promises of the Old Testament, that he has come to crush Satan's head, to to defeat Satan's sin and death, to defeat all of your enemies and to redeem your people. We praise you that he is the king of all kings and Lord of all lords. We praise you that you have given us your word where you can teach us about him clearly, that we might love him more dearly, and walk with Him more nearly. So, Father, we ask that Your Holy Spirit, who loves to glorify Jesus, would do that now. We pray that He would make Christ so majestic and glorious in our minds. We know He already is that, but we don't always see Him as that. 
So we pray for your Holy Spirit's help to open our eyes to see the glories of Jesus Christ. We pray that as we see him, we would be transformed from one degree of glory to the next. And we pray for our friends here who don't know you yet, that they would see Jesus and that they would come to him, trust in him, and turn from their sins. Strengthen our church family, Father, and gather in your people, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, the story is pretty basic and clear. It's a short story that we're covering this week. Just by way of review, Jesus fed 5,000. He walked on water, went to the other side. He talked to his disciples there, went somewhere else, and then fed. Then he went or he healed a Syrophoenician woman, her daughter. Remember, uh, Jesus, she was begging Jesus, and Jesus healed her even though she was a Gentile. And then he fed 4,000 Gentiles, 4,000 Gentile non-Jewish men, plus women and children. And then he took his disciples on a boat across. They had one loaf of bread and they were freaked out because they thought they didn't bring enough food after Jesus fed 5,000 men plus women and children and then 4,000 men plus women and children. And Jesus said to them, are you still blind? That was his question. Don't you see? Are you still blind? Don't you understand Yet, do you have eyes and not see? Do you have ears and not hear? Again, he was quoting the Jewish leaders during the decline of the kingdom and the exile when they were blind to who God was. Are you blind just like them? And that's where we left off a few weeks ago. Now we pick up and we get a story of a blind man. Mark is very strategic here. Now there's a blind man and he can't see. And so they bring some friends, bring him to Jesus And when they bring him to Jesus, Jesus spits in his eyes, on the eyelids, or maybe spit on his hand and then put it on the eyes, or spit on the ground and mix it together. The point is, there was spit on the man's eyes, okay? That's not common today when you go to the hospital. Rare is it that the doctor spits in your eye when you go to the clinic for a checkup, right? My son, my wife is not here this morning. My son has a fever. Prayed for him this morning. I did not spit in his eyes or spit on him to heal him. Uh, But back in that day, that was not uncommon. Miracle workers, uh, you know, in in the superstitious culture, perhaps, you know, the spit of some people could could be a healing salve, they thought. So this is not uncommon. Jesus is not being rude to the man. He's just entering into the custom of that day and, and spitting on his eyes. You know, then he asked the man, after taking him out of the village for this question, do you see anything? And he says, he sees, it looks like trees walking. So apparently this man has not been born blind, but became blind later on in life because he knows what a tree is. He knows what a tree looks like. So I see trees walking. And then Jesus, after that, again, he places his hands on the man's eyes. And then the man saw clearly, distinctly. And then Jesus told him, don't go back into the village. That's scene one. Then you get to the next scene. Jesus takes his disciples and again, still in Gentile area, non-Jewish area. Remember, he's on the retreat. They have already rejected him and he's on the retreat getting his disciples ready for the final phase of his ministry. They go to Caesarea Philippi on the way into this Gentile area to this mountain. As they're on their way, he says, who do you say that? Who do people say that I am? Some say you're John the Baptist raised from the dead. Others say you're Elijah. Still others are you're one of the other prophets. Okay. Who do you guys say that I am? You are the Messiah. 
Peter says. Then Jesus says, do not say a word to anyone about that. Don't tell anyone. And so from that point on, Jesus begins to teach his disciples that he, the son of man, must suffer many things. He would be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes, the leaders of the Jews. He would be rejected by them, arrested by them. He would be killed. And in three days, he would rise again. Peter didn't like that. So Peter pulls Jesus aside and rebukes him. Now that rebuke is not a master, sir, Can you repeat what you're saying? I think you might get it off a little bit. No, that's not what Peter did. Peter rebuked Jesus. The word here is the same word of Jesus rebuking demons. When demons are in possessing people and he says, get out of him, be quiet, demon. In the similar strong word, Peter is rebuking Jesus. And Jesus gives it right back to him and says, get behind me, Satan. Because you're not thinking about God's concerns, God's agenda, the things of God, God's thoughts. Your thoughts are man's thoughts. And that ends our story for today. Now, the next passage picks up right on this story. So I don't want to presume, I don't want to give that impression that the next part isn't part of the story, but we're cutting it off right there for today. That's enough for a, for a Sunday sermon portion. So we'll think about this story together. Mark's main goal is that he wants us to see Jesus. That's what he wants us to do. He wants you to know who Jesus is. That's why he wrote the book. The beginning of the book says the beginning of the gospel of Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. So Mark tells us right in the beginning what he thinks about Jesus. He's the Messiah, the Son of God. He wants us to see Jesus so much that we want to trust him with our lives and repent from our sins and just follow him with the rest of our lives. That's what Mark wants. That's what God wants us to do as well. And so it begin, this passage begins with a devastating question. Who do you say that I am? The answer to that question, the true heart's answer to that question, drives the life of everyone. Whoever you think Jesus is drives your life. Now, not just who you say he is with your mouth, who you actually believe he is in your heart, it drives your words. It drives your thoughts. It drives your decisions. It drives your schedule. It drives everything about you, what you think about Jesus. Well, what if someone's never thought about Jesus? Then they think he doesn't exist. And if they don't think he exists, that drives their life. The non-existence of Jesus defines their life. This question is singularly defining who you are just by saying, who do you believe in your heart of hearts who Jesus is? is so here's the main idea of the passage main idea of the sermon see and embrace jesus as the messiah who came to die for sins and rise from the dead very simple very straightforward but i think that's the point of this passage see and embrace jesus for who he is as the messiah who came to die for sins and rise from the dead so let's think about it we'll we'll get the, the story of the blind man at the end as our closing exhortation and application let's start in verse 27 First of all, I have three points here. See Jesus' identity. That's my first point. See Jesus' identity. Secondly, see how Jesus defines his Messiahship. And thirdly, see Jesus. Seeing Jesus is a gift that often comes in stages. Okay? So see his identity. See how Jesus defines his Messiahship. 
And understand that seeing Jesus is a gift that often comes in stages. Okay, let's look at the first part. Jesus' identity. Let's look at Jesus' identity. So I told you here the story. He's on his way to Caesarea Philippi. Now, Caesarea Philippi was in the Gentile area, and it was a place before where they used to worship Baal. You've heard of Baal or Baal, the, one of the Old Testament idols that the Old Testament Israel worshipped, right? That was a place where they worshipped Baal. And so Jesus is going there to Caesarea Philippi. And then, after they worship Baal there, eventually they stop worshipping Baal and they worship the Greek god Pan, who was half man and half goat. He was supposedly the god who controlled flocks and nature. That's the place where they worship the Greek god Pan. And then it was renamed from Banias or Panias to Caesarea Philippi. Caesarea, what word is in Caesarea? What name is in Caesarea? Caesar. So now it was renamed to worship Caesar. Now, Roman emperor worship was not uncommon even in that day. And so this was a highly religious place. Do you worship Baal? Do you worship the Greek god Pan? Do you worship the Roman emperor? Jesus is going to this place and he's saying, who am I? In contrast to these other gods, who am I? You see the question and you see the context and why, where he's asking this question is important. Notice it's a question of identity, not of activity. Not what do you do. That's what we ask in America, right? You meet someone, so what do you do? And that's what defines you. I am a pastor. I am a truck driver. I am a doctor. I am, and whatever you do is what defines you. That's not true, really. That's just a job you do. And so the question is not, what, what do I do? It's, who do people say I am? Who am I? It's a question of identity. Now, the answers there were, popular answers of that day were John the Baptist. Herod thought that. What did Herod do to John, the baptizer? He cut off his head, right? And then when Jesus was wandering around, he said, Oh no, John the Baptist has risen from the dead. Others said that he was Elijah. Now, why would they think he's Elijah? Two reasons. Do you remember how Elijah died in the Old Testament? He didn't die. That's right. He, he, he was one of the two men. Who's the other man who didn't die? Bible trivia. Anyone? Who? Pastor Merle? Enoch, right. Enoch, right. Enoch. So, so that's just Bible trivia. But Elijah didn't die. He was taken up in a, a chariot of fire or beside a chariot of fire as Elisha was with him. And then the last prophecy of the Old Testament before the whole Old Testament closes in Malachi 4.2, Elijah is coming before the Lord. So some people thought, oh, Jesus is Elijah. He's the one to come before the Lord. Others said, oh, he's not Elijah. He's just one of the other prophets. Still a big deal, but that's who they thought he was. Now today, there's no shortage of views on who Jesus is. Some people think Jesus is a cool, tolerant, understanding man, in which case Christians and churches don't understand who Jesus is. They're just stuck in their church traditions. So some, Jesus is a great moral teacher who displayed love better than everyone else and taught the golden rule very well. Others think Jesus is a myth. Others still, if you look at Jesus.com, you want to know who Jesus is? Go to Jesus.com. If you go to Jesus.com, it takes you to the Metropolitan Community of Churches. And they're, they're, it's a network of churches. And the distinctive of the Metropolitan Community of Churches, and they've been going on for decades, um, their distinctive is that they always have believed that you can have same-gender sexual relationships, that, and that's pleasing to God. Now, today, 2015, that's totally popular. But five years ago, ten years ago, I mean, they've been going for decades 
with this. So if you want to know who Jesus is, go to Jesus.com. Jesus is a person who affirms your sexual uh, attractions, no matter what they are. Well, what are some popular figures? Other popular figures, um, and I, I got this from a, another pastor who, who wrote about this. Other popular figures have said that, um, well, Fidel Castro, for example. He said, I never saw a contradiction between the ideas that sustain me and the ideas of that symbol, of that extraordinary figure, Jesus Christ. Wow. Okay, that's Fidel Castro. Mikhail Gorbachev. Jesus was the first socialist, the first to seek a better life for mankind. Malcolm X, Christ wasn't white, Christ was black. The poor brainwashed Negro has been made to believe Christ was white to maneuver him into worshiping white men. A white Jesus, a white virgin, white angels, white everything, but a black devil, of course. Martin Luther King Jr., Jesus Christ was an extremist for love, truth, and goodness. Rollo May, an American existential psychologist, said, Christ is the therapist for all humanity. The great therapist. Well, that's just popular culture or general culture. Then you have um, religions who say things about Jesus. Mormons say that Jesus was not fully God or that Jesus was a God um, and you could become a God too. Jesus was not a God but a man who became one of many gods and Jesus was a polygamist and the half-brother of Lucifer. The Jehovah's Witnesses say that Jesus was Michael the Archangel, a created being that became a man. Unitarian Universalists believe that Jesus was not God, but a nice man respected for his teaching, love, justice, and healing. New Age guru Deepak Chopra thinks Christ is a state of consciousness that we can all aspire to. Baha'is say that Jesus was a manifestation of God and a prophet, but inferior to Muhammad and Baha'u'llah. Buddhism teaches that Jesus was an enlightened man like Buddha, but not God. Hindus think Jesus may be one of thousands of gods or just a wise man or maybe an incarnation of God like Krishna. Islam teaches that Jesus is a prophet but not the most superior or final prophet. There's something about this question that polarizes people. Who is Jesus? No shortage of perspectives. No shortage of, uh, no shortage of opinions. We have to get that answer right. You have to get this answer right. Your eternal destiny depends on that. And you need to tell other people the right answer to this question because their eternal destiny depends on this question. Now, it's polarizing not just because there's different opinions, but you can even have high exalted opinions and still dishonor Jesus. If Jesus is the Son of God, the Messiah, then to call him Elijah... Now, if you called me Elijah or one of the great prophets, that would be a compliment, right? But if you call Jesus one of the greatest prophets, is that a compliment? No. no. That's an insult. If he really is God, right? If he really is the Son of God, if he really is the Messiah, if he really is King of kings and Lord of lords, then to call him one of the great prophets is an insult to him. That's how polarizing this question is. Who do you think Jesus is? You can try to honor him with a great title, the greatest moral teacher ever. That sounds honoring, that's dishonoring. So who is Jesus? Peter gives us the answer in verse 29, right? So we get to verse 29, and it says, But you, Jesus asked them, Who do you, disciples, say that I am? And Peter answers them in verse 29, You are the what? The Christ, 
or Messiah. The Christ or Messiah was the anointed one. And who were the anointed ones in the Old Testament? Anointed ones were prophets, priests, kings. They were anointed with oil and they had a special role, anointed by oil, anointed by God's spirit to carry out their duty. For Jesus to be the Messiah is to fulfill his role in some way as God's anointed one. But not just the lowercase m Messiah, like David or Solomon, but the Messiah, the great Messiah, who has come to fulfill God's promises. Now the Jews expected a Messiah, but their expectation of the Messiah wasn't clear. They were expecting a king of kings and lord of lords, and some people in in that day said they were the Messiah, and they failed. All Messiahs in those days tried to garner a little army to overthrow Rome, and they would always fail. And so here's Jesus claiming to be the Messiah. They thought the Messiah was a conquering king who was going to bring the promises of the Old Testament to pass, that Israel would reign, that God's people would reign and be restored, and the end time would come. That's what they thought. And you know what? They were not far off. Look at Micah chapter 5. If you would turn to Micah chapter 5 in your Bible, you can just listen if you want. But I will read to you Micah chapter 5, verses 1 through 9. It says this. Now you must muster your troops, O daughter of troops. Siege is laid against us. With a rod they strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. So Israel is under attack. And they're going to be oppressed. Eventually exiled. If you know anything about Old Testament history, there was a united kingdom. The kingdom was divided. They were in the promised land. And God says, you have not kept the law covenant. I'm kicking you out of the land. Okay? And so here, Micah is prophesying to Israel as they're about to be exiled, kicked out of the land. And it says this, here's the encouragement in Micah 5.2. And you'll notice this around Christmas time. But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be a ruler in Israel, whose origins is of old from ancient days. Who's that talking about? Jesus, right? From Bethlehem. This is the prophecy about his birth in Bethlehem. But we always stop there for Christmas. Let me read on in this, in this chapter. Therefore, what is this ruler going to do? Notice, it's not talking about a baby. It's talking about a ruler who's going to be a king. Verse 3, he shall give them up until the time when she, is, when she who is in labor has given birth and the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel. When this ruler comes, the people will return where? To Israel. They're kicked out of the land. They're going to come back. When the ruler from Bethlehem comes in verse four, it says the strength of the Lord will be with him and they will dwell secure in verse five. It says that when Assyria, that's the kingdom that's going to conquer Israel and exile them. When when the Assyrian comes into our lands and treads in our palaces, then we will raise against him seven shepherds and eight shepherds and eight princes of men. They shall shepherd the land of Assyria with a sword. In other words, Assyria who kicked out Israel, when they come back in our land, guess what we're going to do? We're going to kick them out. They're going to be pressed under our sword when the ruler from Bethlehem comes. In verse 8, it says that the remnant of Jacob shall be among the nations in the midst of many peoples like a lion among the beasts of the forest. Now, the lion is the king of the jungle, right? The lion is the king. And so Israel will be among many nations as the king nation. When Jesus, when, when the Messiah from Bethlehem comes. And then it's, it ends with verse 9 with this. All your enemies shall be cut off. That's what it means to be the Messiah. The King. You're going to restore Israel. Conquer the enemies 
restore the nation to its prominence and all the enemies of God will be cut off. That's what it means to be Messiah. And that's what the Jews understood. Biblical, right? It's in the Bible. Michael 5 is in the Bible. That's a biblical view. They expected the Messiah to do three things. Rebuild or cleanse the temple. Number two, defeat the enemy that was oppressing God's people. And number three, bring God's justice, that rich, restoring, purging, healing power to bear on both Israel and the rest of the world. Now, there are different ways they thought of how the Messiah was going to do these three things, but that's what they thought the Messiah was going to do. And now Jesus says, who do you say that I am? And Peter says, you are the Messiah, the Christ. And then Jesus says, shh, don't tell anyone. What? This is the biggest news. This is headline news, right? The Messiah who's going to restore them and conquer Rome and get us out? And you want me to be quiet? That's strange. But that's that's what Jesus tells them. Now, why? Maybe a combination of reasons. Jesus doesn't want to spark a false revolutionary fervor that might attempt to overthrow Rome. That's not why he's here. Tied to that is his desire to guard against spurious conversions where people want to follow Jesus out of political or social desire more than out of repenting from their sins and trusting him. Maybe another reason why Jesus wanted them to be quiet was he wanted to cut a different profile of what the Messiah was going to be. And he actually will. It is going to be in line with Micah 5. But there are other Old Testament texts. Jesus wants to say defines what a Messiah is. So here's the first point. You need to know who Jesus is. He is the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. He's the Messiah and he is Lord over you. You need to submit to him as Lord. That's the first point. No, see Jesus identity. Second point, see Jesus define his Messiahship. Look at verses 31 to 33. Now Jesus is going to define what he means by Messiah because they are thinking King of Kings, conquer Rome, bring Israel back to prominence. Here's what Jesus says the Messiah is going to do. Look at verse 31. Then he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things, be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the scribes, be killed, and and rise after three days. And here are the record skips. I can't do a record skip sound, but, you know, like, you're the Messiah, that's great, and then, and now I'm going to die. And then, you know, just stop. What? That's not what was, that's against the script. I read Micah 5. You were born in Bethlehem. You're supposed to rule. You're talking about dying? Being killed? What? Jesus starts to teach them. He has come to be arrested, to be rejected, to die. And he calls himself the Son of Man. That's from Daniel chapter 7. The Son of Man is given authority of the kingdom from God to him. People didn't understand that. It's it's a really difficult passage to understand. But let's break down Jesus' words in verse or verse 31 let's break down mark's words about jesus in verse 31 the son of man must suffer must what does it mean must does he have to do this yes that's the plan right this is required this is the divine plan this is god's will this was the path of jesus this is the joy set before him this was the cup that he had to drink to secure salvation celebration and the exaltation that he desired This was necessary. It had to happen. Now look at the next word. The Son of Man must suffer. What does it mean, suffer? Suffer and be killed. He must suffer and be killed. Does the Old Testament talk about someone suffering and being killed? Yes. Mark is drawing on Isaiah 53 here. Let me read to you Isaiah 53, verse 4. 
Yet he himself bore our sicknesses and carried our pains. But we in turn regarded him stricken, struck down by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. Punishment for our peace was on him and we are healed by his wounds. We all went astray like sheep. We have turned to our own way and Yahweh has punished him for the iniquity of us all. Now here's where it talks about him being suffering and being oppressed. And, and being killed. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb led to the slaughter, and like a sheep silent before her shearers, he did not open his mouth. Verse 8 of Isaiah 53, he was taken away because of oppression and judgment. And who considered his fate? For he was cut off from the land of the living. To be cut off from the land of the living is to be killed. He was killed. He was struck. Because of my people's rebellion, they made, a, they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man at his death, although he had done no violence and had not spoken deceitfully. He was killed. But then Isaiah tells us why he was killed in verse 10. He was crushed, yet, it was the, Lord, yet the Lord was pleased to crush him severely. When you, make, when you make him a restitution offering, he will see his seed, he will prolong his day, and by his hand the Lord's pleasure will be accomplished. Why does he have to die? Because when he dies, God crushes the son. That's what Isaiah 53.10 is saying. God crushes his son for our sins. He had to die. It was prophesied. He had to die for our sins. There's no other way to save us. There's no way any sinner can set foot in heaven, the intermediate heaven now, or when Jesus comes again, the new heavens and the new earth. There's no way that any sinner can set foot in God's presence with sin unpunished, sin unaccounted for, sin unforgiven. So Jesus had to die. He had to be crushed for our sins. It was necessary. It was part of the plan. Going back to this, um, going back to Mark's, word, Mark's words, not only must he suffer many things, but he must be what by the elders and chief priests? He must be what? What's the word there? He must be? Killed. killed before the killed. He must be what? Rejected. Rejected. Does that bring into your mind any Old Testament passage? The stone that the builders rejected has become the chief what? Cornerstone. This is Psalm 118.22. Jesus, again, he's pulling from Old Testament scripture. You think the Messiah came to rule, and you're right. But the Messiah came to die, Isaiah 53. And the Messiah, Messiah came to be rejected. And then when he, in his rejection, in his death, and then in his resurrection, he becomes the chief corner stone. That's how he's going to bring in the kingdom. That's how he's going to rule and reign. From his rejection and his death on a cross for sinners. That's what it means to be the Messiah. But notice... Jesus doesn't end on bad news. He ends on good news in verse 31. What, what happens after he's killed? What's going to happen? He'll rise after how many days? Three. After three days. Do you know where this is from? This is from Hosea 6.2. Hosea 6.2 says this. He will revive us. Now, this, Hosea is talking about God reviving. Well, let me set the context here. In Hosea 5, verse 10, it's talking about God punishing Israel. Israel will be punished and exiled and kicked out of the land. Why? Because they broke the law covenant that Moses gave. They weren't faithful. So guess what your penalty is? Just like in your, you're in the Garden of Eden, you eat the fruit. What happens to you? You're kicked out of the garden, right? Now you're in the promised land. You disobey the law covenant of Moses. What happens to you? Kicked out of the, the, the new garden, so to speak. 
the promised land. And so God is saying, I'm punishing you in Micah chapter, or in Hosea chapter 5, verse 10 and following. I'm punishing you for breaking the law covenant. But then Hosea 6, 1 says this, or Hosea 5, 15, the last verse of chapter 5 says this, I will depart and return to my place. I'm going to leave you guys until they recognize their guilt and seek my face. They will search for me in their distress. So they're kicked out of the land and what are they going to do? They're going to cry. God, save us. Save us. And so Hosea 6, 1 says this, Come, let us return to Yahweh the Lord. For he has torn us and he will heal us. He has wounded us and he will bind up our wounds. And then verse 2. He will revive us after two days. And on the third day, he will raise us up so we can live in his presence. When is the resurrection? When will, they be, when will Israel be raised up? On the what day? On the third day. Now this is talking about the resurrection of Israel, not the resurrection of the Messiah. But if you read on in Hosea, you get to Hosea chapter 11, verse 1. It says, out of Egypt I called my son Israel. And Matthew tells us that that's talking about who? Jesus, in Matthew chapter 2. Jesus is the true Israel. He's the head representative of Israel. And everyone who believes in Jesus gets to join the people of God. Gets to join Jesus. And he is Israel. Because Israel failed. They broke the law covenant. Jesus kept the law covenant. And so Israel will be raised on the third day. How will Israel be raised on the third day? When the Son of Man, Jesus the Messiah, dies and rises on the third day, everyone who's in Jesus is raised with him. Isn't that true? It says in Romans 6 that when Christ died, we what? We died with him. And when Christ rose from the dead, guess what? We were raised with him. That's what baptism signifies, right? You get baptized, we put you in the water. What does that signify? Your death, your burial, and your resurrection with who? With Christ. And when did Christ rise? On the third day. And so when, when will Israel and God's people rise? When Jesus rises on the third day. So, Peter, so Jesus tells Peter and the disciples, I must be rejected because the stone was rejected. I must suffer and die because the suffering servant of Isaiah 53 says he's going to die for sins. And I must rise from the dead after three days because Israel was supposed to rise on the third day. And I have come. I am the Messiah. So if you're not a Christian... What does all this Old Testament scripture mean for you? You're saying, PJ, this is way over my head. I didn't know anything about Israel. I'm an American citizen. I have, you know, I'm just trying to live my life here in 2015. It's hot outside, trying to keep air conditioning. Like, what does it have to do with me? Here's what it has to do with you. If Jesus fulfilled the Old Testament, if he, if he is the Messiah, if he did die for your sins, and if he did rise from the dead, then you have a glorious opportunity in front of you right now. If you're not a Christian... God can save you from your sins today. God can forgive you of your sins because Jesus went to the cross and died for sins. He was crushed for our iniquities. He was crushed for you. If you will admit that you're a sinner, if you feel your conviction of your sin, if you'll call out to God, to Jesus Christ, to save you because of his death and his resurrection, because he shed his blood, because he died and he rose, if you trust in Jesus and repent and turn from your sins, you can be saved this morning. Call on Jesus to save you. I plead with you. If you have more questions about that, I'll be right here at the end of our closing song. I'll also be at the back door after when everyone's exiting. Please ask me or your friend who brought you here about what it means to follow Jesus and to trust him and to be forgiven of your sins. There's nothing more we'd like to talk about than that. But let's notice here at verse 30. Go to 33 now. But turning around, 
Or Jesus, so, so Peter begins to rebuke him in verse 32. In verse 33, well, let's stop in the verse 32. What does Peter do to Jesus? He what? He rebukes him, right? He rebukes him. Now let's think about this. There's a lot of good fruit here for us to think about for, for our souls. Peter didn't get it, right? He got the Micah 5 part. Conquering king? Got that. You're supposed to conquer. Dying, suffering servant? No, I don't understand that. So Peter didn't get it. Just like everyone else, he expected the conquering king. So Jesus told him and the disciples clearly at least three times that he would die and rise. But Peter couldn't see it. You know why Peter couldn't see it? He had to experience it first. Isn't that true for us sometimes? You know, you just don't learn until you experience things. That's not an excuse to be foolish, but that's true. You know, um, my son, several years ago, when he was younger, I was explaining to him that he's going, we're, we're going to the doctor because he's going to get a shots at the doctor. And then I say, it's going to hurt for a split second, maybe five seconds at the most, maybe three seconds, one second, and then the pain will go away. But um, he's had shots before at this point. So when he heard he's getting shots, guess what he started doing? He started crying. And he didn't hear the fact that I said, it's going to hurt for two seconds. When you feel, when, as soon as you hear, I'm getting shots as a little kid, you don't hear anything else. It's all gone after that, right? And it's, it's similar. And, and, but then when my son got the shot, at this point he was old enough where he got the shot and he, was, he, he cried really quick and then he was like, that's it? And it was gone. And it was done. And he stopped. And then what I said earlier made sense. But he, it didn't make sense to him until he got the shot, right? He had to experience it first. Same thing here with Peter. I'm going to die and I'm going to rise. He didn't hear anything about the rise part. You're going to die and just... What? That's, that's all he focused on. Peter had to go through it because the fear gripped him so much and the disillusionment that he couldn't hear anything else Jesus was saying. So Peter disagreed with Jesus. He rebuked Jesus as if Jesus was a devil. The way Jesus rebukes demons, Peter rebukes Jesus. What does this mean for us? Isn't it easy for us to question God sometimes in our lives? Do you ever question God? It's easy for us to question God when we have a shallow perception of the situations we're in. Peter didn't get it. We have shallow perceptions of our moment, and so we complain. That's why we complain so quickly and give thanks to God so slowly, because we don't perceive what's actually going on. We can feel so sure that we get it, that we see it correctly, just as it is when we're actually wrong. Part of our problem is that in times like this, we're not even open to the possibility of being wrong. We have to be right. Peter had to be right. But guess what? Peter was wrong. Now, did Peter love Jesus? Yes, Peter loved Jesus. I think that's why he rebukes him so strongly. I think, it's, I think of it akin to, I imagine me talking to one of my grown children in the future and them saying, I got to sacrifice myself for this person. You know, like, let's say there's a, a burning house or something and like my son or saying i gotta go in and save them and i'm like don't do it because i don't want to lose my son right and so with all my love for my son don't do it strong strong out of love but not understanding that there's a greater purpose he's serving right that's similar to jesus here peter loves jesus he loves jesus so much that when jesus is actually arrested he's the only one who pulls out a sword and tries to chop someone's head off but because he's not a trained swordsman he totally misses and cuts off an ear right (laughs) Or maybe you think he was, or maybe you think Peter was a trained swordsman and he was just really precise, like a warning shot. You know, I could, I could do a lot more if you, if you keep messing, right? 
We don't know. I mean, I, I think of Peter as a sloppy swordsman who just missed and, and, and lobbed out the ear. We don't know exactly. But here's the point. Peter loved Jesus. And he didn't want Jesus to die. But here's the crazy thing. What does Jesus call Peter? Get behind me, Satan. Get this. Sometimes your love for Jesus can be satanic. Right? He doesn't want Jesus to go to the cross because he loves him. I love you, Jesus. You're not going to the cross. You're not going to the cross. Get behind me, Satan. You're not thinking about God's concerns. You're thinking about man's concerns. You're not on God's agenda. You're not captivated by all of God's word. Yes, you have Micah 5. You don't have Isaiah 53. You don't have Psalm 118. You don't have Hosea chapter 6, verse 2. Your mind, you've taken part of the Bible and you've ran with it. And you have this dream of a glorious kingdom. You're not setting your mind on all that God has said. I know you love me, but your love is being satanic right now. Get behind me, Satan. Wow. That's amazing that our love for Jesus can be satanic. When your love for Jesus is driven by your own agenda, by your own concerns, by your own interests, by your own thoughts, by your own point of view, by the things of man and not the things of God, when God's word has not captured your agenda and your plans and your schedule and your interests and your thoughts and your perspective, then our actions, though thinking we're loving Jesus, can actually be satanic. Sincerity is not the issue here. Is Peter sincere? Yes. Good intentions is not the issue here. Does Peter have good intentions? Yes. And yet, Jesus calls him Satan with good intentions, with sincerity. Lord Jesus, look at my heart. Don't you know that I love you? Get behind me, Satan. Good intentions are not enough. Sincerity is not enough. Your sincerity has to be locked in to God's whole word. Your love for God has to to be defined by God's word. Jesus said, if you love me, keep my what? Commandments, Commandments, right? He didn't say, if you love me, good job. You have a sincere heart. That's good enough. No, no. If you love me, let that sincerity. Now, sincerity a good thing? Yes. Are good intentions a good thing? Yes. But let's define goodness as obeying all of God's words. Romans 8, 5 says, those who live according to the flesh, think about the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the spirit, think about the things of the spirit. Colossians 3 says, set your mind on things above, not on what is on the earth. Romans 12, 1, don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you might approve Or discern what is the good, pleasing, and perfect will of God. When your mind is transformed by God's words and God's thoughts, then your love for God is on the right track. And when your love and passion for God is sincere and good-willed, but it's not captivated by God's word, it's on the wrong track. Here's Here's the scary thing. Don't assume you're being biblical like Peter did, just because you think you are. Peter has Micah 5, 1 through 9. It's in the bag. I'm biblical. No, you're not, Peter. There's other verses. And if you're going to get the whole agenda of God, 
Not that you have to understand everything, but at least pause and let me explain it to you. Don't be so sure of your perspective that you miss God's agenda. And so we need to do the same. We need, to, we need to study God's word. Read your Bible, pray every day, and you'll grow, grow, grow. That's what the kids song, right? Let's, let's, that's why God give, gives, has given us a church. So you don't study the Bible by yourself. We correct each other, right? We sharpen each other. Iron sharpens iron. We study the Bible together. We think about texts. We repent from sin. We get corrected over and over again. So I want to encourage you, brothers and sisters, to keep reading your Bible and keep listening to brothers and sisters when they speak God's word to you. Don't shut them off because you think you know what you think you know. Let's set our hearts and minds on God's concerns and study all of God's word before we just get upset because, like Peter was upset with Jesus. He was mad at Jesus because he was closed off to to seeing God's word and God's teaching from God's perspective. That's the second thing. Okay, so see Jesus define messiahship. What kind of messiah is he? A dying messiah, a rising messiah. And third, last point, and just quickly, see that Jesus, seeing Jesus is a gift that comes in stages often, and it's a gift from God. Let's go back to that story as we close, the the blind man. Here's the blind man, friends brought him, right? And what happened? Jesus spit and said, do you see? And what did he say? I see what? I see trees that look like people walking, okay? Did he see clearly in that first stage? No. Jesus touches his eyes again. What do you see? Now he sees clearly, right? That is a picture of the disciples. Remember the passage right before it? Jesus said, are you so blind? Do you have eyes and do you not see about the loaves? Do you understand who I am? What is Jesus showing us here? What is Mark showing us? That the disciples are going to understand who Jesus is, but it's going to come in stages. First stage, do they see who Jesus is? Who does Peter say Jesus is? He is the what? Messiah. It's like a tree walking. I see that you're the Messiah, conquering king. Okay, now let me give you clarity. He's going to die and rise. No, 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 no. Well, once Jesus dies and rises, does Peter see clearly? Yeah. So here's the point. Seeing Jesus often comes in stages. What does that mean for us? Let's be patient with each other. Right? Let's not get mad at each other when we don't get it. Let's work with each other. Let's teach God's word to each other. When you're sharing the gospel with non-Christians, should you be discouraged when they reject Jesus the first time they hear the gospel? No. Keep coming. It comes in stages sometimes. Conversion is a single point, but, but keep going. Keep sharing the gospel. Keep teaching people God's word and let them grow. And last thing on this thing about Jesus uh, with this, was the man able to heal himself of the blindness? Were his friends able to heal him? Who is the only person able to heal him? Jesus. It's a gift. If you're going to come to Jesus, if you're going to see Jesus for who he is, it's a what? It's a gift. Jesus has to open your eyes. That's why we say if you're saved by grace through faith. And you have to believe, but it's by God's grace. God has to give you sight. Give you eyes. And does God? don't we praise God that he wants to give us sight? Isn't God generous to give us eyes to see and ears to hear? We should praise God for that. And we should pray for our non-Christian friends that they would see and hear and understand Jesus so that they might embrace him and follow him with all their lives. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you sent Jesus. We thank you that he's not just a conquering king and we know he will conquer. That's what we pray for, that he'll come soon to conquer. But we know he hasn't conquered just yet. 
And so, Father, we pray that we will continue to spread the gospel. That we would tell our family members, our neighbors, our friends, who Jesus is. We pray that we would remind each other as a church family who Jesus is. That we would gospelize each other and remind each other of all that the Bible says. Lest our good intentions and love for you goes off track or even worse, become satanic. Thank you, Father, for your word. Thank you for your truth. Thank you for opening our eyes. Thank you that your Holy Spirit lives in us and will continue to teach us. We pray that we would continue to grow in our love for Jesus with a sincere heart, good intentions, and a mind that is captivated and humble and teachable to all that your word says, whether we're reading it on our own or whether other brothers and sisters are teaching and speaking to us. We pray for our non-Christian friends that you'd open their eyes even this morning. Continue to build your church here, this church family, and other churches as we preach your gospel. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.